Hey, you're listening to the Brutally Delicious Podcast. I'm Bruce. And I'm Chris. And today we're joined by producer extraordinaire Michael Beinhorn. You're going to want to listen to this one. <laughs> you are definitely going to want to listen to this one. Lots of good, lots of good topics covered in this. All right. So, yeah, but uh, yeah, not taking anything away from their from Firepower, which I think was a great record. It's definitely not, you know, screaming for vengeance or or those kind of records. British Steel. Yeah, it's not it's not vintage, but I think it like last year, it came out last year, right? I think. Yeah, last year or the year before, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I I I it's still on on regular rotation. And I like there's a lot of classic metal songs on that. I think when we look back on firepower, I mean, if you're going to go out on a high, I think that's the way to do it. You know? Uh, oh yeah, and that dude's what probably close to seventy now, and I mean, he oh. sounds yeah, he sounds oh. better than he's sounded in you know thirty years. Let me see how old he is here. I'm betting he's close to seventy. Sixty-seven. Yeah, it was close. My that, God, if, I, if I'm if I'm that active when I'm sixty-seven, you know, riding a Harley onto a stage and then running around in tight metal pants and screaming my face off, I'm gonna be a happy guy. Right. I mean, look, look my my parents, whatever. All these people, it's all they can do to get to the kitchen or or get down the hallway. And this guy's touring the world still and still making some of the most relevant records of his career. It's pretty crazy. Oh yeah, and and. Um, their guitar player, I can't remember his name. What was his name? The guy that has Parkinson's. I don't oh, I can't believe it's Glenn Tipton. Oh yeah. I couldn't believe Tipton. He's had Parkinson's for years. And just never he was just like, oh whatever, I'm gonna play guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like And then finally he's like, Okay, I can't do this. Right, because he's up he, he's up there in the seventies or close to seventies as well. Yeah. And then he's like, Well, I could probably still do a few shows. I'll just fly out. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would love to be in the audience when he makes his, uh, you know, surprise appearances. That'd be pretty killer. Well, I don't know if he'll do that anymore um, on this tour, but he did. He the, the, the first time they came through D.C. here, he did play on stage here. He popped up for a quick little round. And I imagine the crowd went absolutely nuts. Oh, it was crazy. I think they did Living After Midnight and it was just over the top. Nice. Yeah. And then Maiden's coming, too. I can't wait for that show. That's another band, though. I mean, they're not quite, I don't think, pre-stage, but they're they're getting up there, and they're still original members putting on an amazing show. Oh, it's unbelievable. I, I there, there was this meme going around for a while. It was like uh, Mariah Carey, New Year's Eve, <laughs> Times <laughs> Square. And I couldn't hear myself. I couldn't sing, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a picture of Bruce Dickinson. Underneath, he's like, I fought tongue cancer. I beat it. I then got in the jet, flew my band to Rio, and I rocked my ass off. What's your problem? Yeah. Yep. That guy's like got a million accomplishments between, you know, the flying the major jets and I think he's like a professional fencer as well as a heavy metal singer and an author and whatever the hell else he does. It's pretty wild. Oh, it's insane, you know, and I I was speaking with Wolfgang, who manages their press stuff, and I said I said to, to him, I said, does he really fly the plane? He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He really flies the plane. That's so crazy. Like, it's, not, 
was like, it's not just a promo stunt. No, no, he loves flying the plane. I was like, that's insane. <laughs> that's pretty amazing accomplishments. Yeah. And still relevant. I mean, still putting out good records and, and you know, putting on great shows. We saw them last year, like I said. And he gets around like nobody's business. Oh, yeah. I think he's classically trained, too, as a vocalist. Hmm. He, kind of, he seems like the academic guy to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I'll never forget the first time I heard Aces High. I was like, I think I was about, what year was that record? 86? Yeah, no. I would, that's probably about right. 86, 87? 86, 87. And my older brother had bought it. And he got, he ran around Christmas and we were at my grandma's place and my parents had bought me this ghetto blaster. <laughs> and I hit play and I heard Aces High for the first time. And I was just like, what is this music? It is so good. You know, my mom's like, don't listen to that. That's the devil's music. Yeah. <laughs> the devil's music. So I don't know. You know how what you know about me, but growing up, I grew up in the in the church kind of setting, and man, they used to have those people come in and try and play records backwards. It was that whole satanic panic of the late '80s, and they'd be playing they'd be playing records backwards. And oh wait, he just said you know uh, Beelzebub is my whatever, and it, nonsense crap. It was they used to have like record burning parties. You could bring your CDs and your records, and they'd burn them in a bonfire to free you from Satan and all kinds of bullshit. <laughs> as you can see as you can see it worked because here i am you know 40 years later doing this crap so buying <laughs> records right and, and and not playing them backwards at all and imagine if they had a ghost or anything like that now they'd be all freaked out oh my god yeah back then they're worried about twisted sister you right know, d, d schneider's testifying before congress <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah, we're not going to take it. What a bad song! Oh, my God! Yeah, and I think if you play it backwards, you know, it says, uh, Satan, come have chicken nuggets with me or something. <laughs> totally planned. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, what I've learned to do is speak forwards so that it ends up being something else backwards. Satan taught me. <laughs> right, even, <laughs> even the riffs. You can play the riffs if you play them a certain way. They, uh, you know, they speak to you backwards oh man people can get right out of control but uh, whatever <laughs> yeah it is what it is what else have you been listening to this week uh you know a lot of my own music i've been working uh i've been writing a lot of songs lately and um I, that's really all i've been doing i haven't really been listening to a lot of other music other than that i've been referencing a lot of tracks like the new death angel is still high on the rotation right that's a great track, but um, yeah. What about you? What have you been listening to? Uh, still stuck on the Amana Marth. That's uh, that's got me this week. Yeah, I, st I started a Pandora radio station, a Judas Priest Pandora radio station. So in the car, you know, I listen to whatever Pandora decides I'm gonna listen to. Right. From from the priest kind of area. So there's a lot of old classic Maiden in there. Priest accept. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's kind of cool to go back and, and hear the roots of metal. You know, when I grew up, that's people called that metal, but I don't know. I kind of see it more as hard rock. Like, when I think of metal now, I think of much heavier 
fans than than those. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Yeah, I think of like the uh, the growling Amata Marth, Death Angel kind of stuff, not priests. Yeah, Lamb of God. You know, I'd consider in that right. category. And yeah. in in like 20 years, that uh, Twisted Sister stuff's gonna be like elevator music, easy listening. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm, my wife always listens to this radio station up here. I can't remember the name of it, but it's like an 80s hit station. And they play like Phil Collins and like, mm-hmm. you know, Cyndi Lauper. And, and they play Twisted Sister and Bon Jovi and all these bands that were like heavier, you know. Right. And now they're easy listening or whatever you want to call them. It's like, oh, I remember that song. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hello. Hey, Michael, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Great, thanks. Thanks, thanks for, for joining us. Yeah, we, we don't have too many questions. questions. We're just going to kind of have a conversation and see what's going on, right? That sounds good to me. What, what are you working, working on these days? days? Um, I am in the midst of doing pre-production with a bunch of different artists. Any, anything you're allowed to share with us, or is that? Uh... I mean, I've done some work with Rivers Cuomo from from Weezer. I mean, a lot of the other artists I'm working with aren't quite on that tier. So I was going through uh, your bio, and I I was just shocked at some of the stuff that you worked on. Huh. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is maybe maybe you get asked this a lot, maybe you don't. But when you did the Mother's Milk record. Um, you were working with a Vancouver engineer at the time, or he is now Vancouver-based, Garth Richardson. Um, I'm originally from Vancouver, and I worked with Garth for a few months. Now, uh-huh. what, was, what was your experience like working on that record with, with Garth? I mean, he's such an accomplished guy now, but at the time, I, I, I assume he was just kind of getting his feet wet with it. Well, Garth didn't really, like, he didn't, he wasn't on the record for that long, um, he tracked, we tracked drums and bass with him. And then, um, I think he was with us for a few, like a few weeks, um, when we started tracking guitars and, um, he, he left the project after that. Um, so, uh, ah. I don't really, I don't have too much, I don't have too much of a recollection of what the experience was like, to tell you the truth. Oh, that's cool. I totally understand. Yeah. It was, I mean, it's it's quite a while ago. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a while ago. It's just funny because you guys are both so accomplished in what you do now. Right, right. You know, but at the time, you know, you were not just getting started, but you were kind of on the, on the rise, so to speak. So I was just wondering yeah. how how that felt and what it was like kind of going through that process. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't recall really working with him so much. I mean, the process of working with the band, that's, a, that was definitely a different story. That's kind of where my head was at really. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And um, did you have any challenges working on that record per se? Um, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I, I did two records with the Chili Peppers, and each one of them presented their own unique sets of challenges. Uh, you know, uh, it was, and it, it, both both records were were totally totally different. Um, you know, the the one before Uplift Mofo Party Plan had been really about trying to help establish them. Yeah, more because they weren't really. Um, 
they were they were complete unknowns actually outside of Los Angeles at that point. You know, with like a couple of very rare exceptions. And uh, you know, once we once we established the more Mother's Milk was really about trying to create like a firm identity and even maybe get them a bit more noticed because all of a sudden their record label was very interested in them, which is a a dramatic sort of turnaround from where, where they were before the record company absolutely dis- I, I would say they despised them <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of comical um to see also to see them do a complete you know reversal like that um but you know i mean there were issues within the band like um the band members were kind of uh flea and anthony were kind of they, they had sort of a feud going on while we were making the record so it was kind of hard to get like both to get both sides to really come to the table at any point. So I kind of found myself sort of out there on my own a lot of the time trying to make the record. Oh yeah. Uh, so it was, you know, I mean, that, that was tough. Pre-production took a long time, you know, I mean, before we, we initially started the record, um, a good, a, a long time before, before we actually did commence work and um, the day that we were supposed to begin pre-production, one of the members of the band died, um, Hillel Slovak. So that kind of put a, <laughs> wow. that, was, that was definitely put a crimp in things. And, you know, they, they went through a series of drummers and guitarists and things like that. And it was a, you know, it was, it, it was definitely an epic kind of uh, <laughs> slog to get to the finish line on that one. It was, it was a, it was hard. It was really, really hard to do, you know. So, so go ahead, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, go ahead, Bruce. It's okay. So you've got quite a quite a resume and a bunch of bands that you've worked with. Do you actively seek out bands that you want to work with nowadays, or are people coming to you, as I'm sure they do? How does that work out? How do you pick the projects you choose? Um, I I've never. I think I've only gone after like a couple of projects in my life. Um, I generally don't tend to, to do it like that. I mean, for one thing, I find that if I'm familiar with a band, that's sort of a, that, that doesn't, it, it doesn't uh, work in, in my favor in terms of trying to produce them because the, you know, the less familiarity I have with an artist, the better, the better job I can do with them. So I try I try to know as little as possible about artists that I'm working with beforehand. It just, it, it makes my ability to be objective um, easier, better. And I think that works, that works in everyone's favor. Gotcha. Okay. Nice. I see also in your bio here that um, you're recording on two inch tape, but with an eight track head stack. Yeah. What yeah. is that? Like I, <laughs> I know about two inch 16 track, so were you just trying to increase the dynamic range of the tape, or what was what was the purpose of going with with that? I, I was trying to increase everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it kind of goes along with the with the principle "more is better," I guess. Like I, I don't yeah. know, like I I I mean, everyone everyone who ever listened to whoever listened to playback on a tape machine would have noticed that there was a dramatic drastic difference in certain tonal elements in terms of, um, in terms of transient response, even signal to noise ratio on, you know, going from 24 to 16. So, oh, yeah. 
logically, I just kind of reasoned that, well, if you can go to, if you can stay in the same format from 24 to 16, why not go, you know, from 16 to eight, 16 to eight, you'd probably get like an exponential increase again from, uh, you know, from 16 to eight, which is, you know, I had someone build these headstocks because the format didn't exist until then. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, it was funny because the first time I got to try it was um, working on an Ozzy Osbourne record, and I actually had had to have this machine that I had retrofitted with these headstocks flown out to flown to Paris um, because you could do things like that back then. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had recording budgets, and you know I had no idea whether it was going to work or not, and I just remember like you know the moment of truth coming and recording a drum pass and playing it back and going like, oh my god, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> It was definitely one of the most exciting moments in, in my life up till that point. Oh, I bet. I mean, I recorded the tape a lot, and what you hear from, from input is not what you hear from return. You know? No, no. It, it's so different. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. And obviously, you're dealing with a, lot, with a lot of other issues when you've changed the, the, heads, the, uh, the head size, or I should say the track width, um, the, you have to be more more careful with aligning the tape machine and getting the azimuths right and stuff like that. But um, and also trying to link it up uh, via time code to other tape machines. You know, there someone had to build a very a special device to be able to do that. Like I didn't want to use any of the audio tracks as a time code uh, storage because you know if you think about the amount of money that I that one just spends on a tape machine and and a head stack. You know, one <laughs> one track on that machine is probably worth about like three or four thousand bucks or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in relative terms, and it's like I can't see just letting that be a you know track for a noise that goes. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did how did you do that then? Well, um, the, uh, the 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 genius who built the headstacks was a guy named John French, who's sadly deceased, but he figured out that we could make that the um, the time code didn't actually need a you know large you know the same kind of width yeah or um, you know for the code so what he did was he had this machine that would print code on a track that was positioned between tracks four and five five it was a very thin uh, very thin track and it was surrounded by um, metal guard bands I can't remember how he did it exactly but. Um, it ensured that there'd be no no um, audio bleed from uh, the center track to four and five because um, a lot of times what would happen is I, I would use the tape machine exclusively for drums and the transient information from the drums um, on other tape machines if it was printed hot enough it would actually bleed it would actually um, move into the time code track and cause the time code to lose lock with other machines yeah so. The, the guard bands actually served like multiple purposes. It ensured that the time code wouldn't be jarred by any kind of transient information from any else. So, I mean, the machine stayed locked better than most machines wow. that, you know, where you had time code on 16 or 24 or something like that. It was, it was incredible. Oh, Great. man. I'm, my mind is just blown right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's some pretty high tech stuff right there. Well, yeah. not for these days. It ain't. No. <laughs> but are you still recording to tape? No, no, I'm. I, I'm not. You know, I. I found that most people actually don't have the. Um, I guess they don't have the musical 
apt the performance aptitude to really be able to get it. Like you really to be able to do that to be, for that to to make sense. You it's important to be working with musicians who can really where you can really capture an incredible performance. And and sadly, a lot of people don't really play that way anymore you know it's more about being able to get like a million different passes you know on a song and being able to edit parts together and it's it's become kind of a almost a waste yeah yeah kind of sad but you know that's that's how it goes yeah yeah absolutely i mean i remember the first time i got pro tools i was just like what is this magic (laughs) (laughs) the vocal actually sounds like the same on input as it does on output. What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a a crazy thing. Yeah. Bruce? Okay, so looking again, I'm looking at your discography and and resume here. Is there a particular session, and this might be difficult because you've done so many, but is there a particular session that stands out as being like one of the most difficult to get done or get to press? Ah, well, (laughs) they've, I think a lot of them have had like their own, they're all, you know, the, the, a lot, I, actually a lot of the best ones really were very, very hard to do. Um, you know, they all, they all had like a certain element. I mean, the first Chili Peppers record is definitely a standout in that department. Um, you know, cause I was dealing with, uh, I was dealing with two band members who were full on junkies Right. Um, you know, and uh, also dealing with a record company that really didn't want to make a record with the artist that would have been that would have been happier in many respects just to drop them. But I think they just they retained the band because they wanted to torture them. <laughs> 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 More than any, I, it's so, I don't know. People made enough jokes about it. Where I was like, wow, I don't understand why they're not dropping these guys. Um, it, it was it, it was a record that I think at any other time in history, probably wouldn't have gotten made. Um, and the fact that we did, that we made it at all, indicates that there may be forces in the universe that are beyond what we can perceive. <laughs> um, but it was, I, you know, I mean, I, it it definitely took a lot out of many people. Uh, I, I remember at one point I was driving in a car with the manager, and uh, we were at an intersection someplace, and he was just waiting, and he took his hands off the wheel of the car, and he put them on his head, and he just kind of hunched over, and he just started mumbling, I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that, that's, that's, that is definitely one that sort of takes the cake. All right, so flipping the script there, do you have one that was, like, super idyllic that just went better than he ever thought it could be? Um... Just in terms of expediency and everything just kind of clicking. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were, you know, um, a lot of them were just were super hard. You know, if it wasn't, you know, if everything went okay and, you know, there were no technical issues on the recording, there'd be things happening with personalities. Um, right. You know, some of the people on the project were, you know, I mean, there, there'd be a lot of psychology involved <laughs> and individual neurosis that had to get worked with. So I, I can't think of, of one record that was like a real standout in, in that way. 
I heard a quote once that uh, after a producer is produced for 20 years, they should be given an honorary degree in psychology. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe some of us. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't really, I don't know that there's like a, a systematic approach that can be applied and reapplied um, just because each person you meet is, each person you meet is, is completely different. I think it's really more hopefully about having good um, empathy skills and being able to understand the people that you're wor- trying to understand the people that you're working with. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, you, you've got to wear a lot of hats uh, sitting behind that console, not just the uh, the producer to add more cowbell. You've got to wear all kinds of hats, correct? <laughs> right? I mean, you got to... Um, yeah, I mean, and then there's a guy who does say, you know, more cowbell. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's funny though because like there there are people who, and I think that this definitely comes into play when you've had enough success um, that you can walk into a room and ju- and command respect from people and um, and also um, where they will kind of almost to some extent, they'll kind of correct themselves. It's really funny how that works. Um, There's some people who are able to command that very, very well. Um, It it also helps if they're working with artists who are are very capable. But, um, you know, there there are some people who are able to to wield that kind of mystique very well and use it to their advantage. Right. Yeah, and I guess that comes in handy then because it's just down the business and making the best record you can make. If you can, if you can get to that place, I mean, you know, <laughs> there'll always be one guy who looks at the other guy and says, you know, this is Bruce Dickinson telling us what to do. So shouldn't we just go ahead and add more cowbell? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got to ask, because Chris and I were talking a little bit about this before we got you on. What was it like working on uh, the Manson albums? Um, it was, you know, I, I guess to some extent, if you can imagine it, it probably happened. It was, it was, <laughs> I mean, he, w- he was actually very professional when he had to work, when he actually had to do his, his end of things. I mean, there were definitely a lot of hijinks going on um uh it was actually a record that i did it it was one of the quickest records i've ever worked on you know um going from soup to nuts i think it took us about like two and a half months to do it oh wow yeah three months maybe with pre-production um and uh it uh definitely he's definitely a unique individual that's for sure Um, but you know like i said when it when when the red light came on you know when it was time for him to do his thing he was really you know he 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 worked very hard so i I have to give him that okay so i've got one more and then we'll see what chris has but nowadays i mean we're talking about how technology has changed so much do you uh do you find that pre-production, I guess you're doing it mostly digitally and emailing files, is that taking away from like what everybody used to get in the room and used to bang things out off each other? Um, well, for one thing, people don't really do pre-production anymore. Um, and a lot of times the getting in the room and banging things out together, I mean, 
that's part that's kind of part of pre-production i mean having that be sort of like the exclusive way a person makes a record is not i think it could be applicable applicable when you're talking about a band like the rolling stones but most artists especially now can't really write songs that are up to that caliber uh you know so they need they need sort of like an extra layer and this has actually been my experience for a very long time for for several decades that you know starting with the chili peppers that artists need another layer of scrutiny and without that you kind of wind up with a record of really mediocre music you know if you don't have people right. who are overseeing the process going like okay you you know this song needs this that song needs that you're missing you're missing a song that will fulfill this function. We need to round the record out, you know, having that kind of overview. I mean, records like Super Unknown wouldn't exist the way they exist without without that kind of pre-production, you yeah. know. So, um, and, and it's sad because now people are not really doing it anymore. Like, they're really, they're actually, like a, an artist will write a song, will write 10, 12 songs, and they'll be like, okay, I'm ready to record, and they'll go into the studio the person they're working with may suggest a couple of uh, alterations while they're in the process of setting up to record or even while they're recording, you know, that part sounds like it could be changed, et cetera, et cetera. But there isn't really any kind of like deep granular observation going on. And I think that that really hurts artists. Um, I, and I would say, I'd say pretty much without, without, with, without exception, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to say with certain exceptions, but I can't, you know, because I just, I haven't heard anyone in a long time who's actually made a record that has the kind of like power, right. the kind of emotional power. And I'm not talking about volume, you know, or how right. loud you can get your guitar to go, or how hard you can hit your drums. It's just the kind of emotional communicative power that music is supposed to evince and provide an audience with. What do you think is causing that? Is that uh, a result of technology and the disconnect? Everybody's doing stuff from distance. So what do you think causes that? Uh, well, actually, the the issue is mainly economic. You know, the issue really stems from the fact that um, people aren't making as much money uh, from record sales anymore, uh, and as a result, record companies aren't spending a lot of money, especially on band. You know, on bands on artists that inv that involve writing songs prior to going into a recording studio, you know, and actually, and will cut them as a band as opposed to songs that are composed by legions of, um, you know, writers that get together, um, who don't necessarily make better music by doing so. In fact, their music tends to be more emotionally kind of like distant and detached because you've got like 15 people in a room together who have no kind of basis on which to, to share a common narrative or communicate a common mood or emotion or something like that. So what they're creating is something that may, while it may be structurally incredibly well put together, it's not going to have the same kind of emotional power that a great song is going to have or a great performance. And right. not to mention the fact that the, the person performing it is not really invested in the music. Like Chances are, I'd say eight, nine times out of ten, the person singing is not one of the people who, who co-wrote the song. You know? Right. But in terms of artists that do, um, a lot of people don't have large recording budgets to work with. So if you're a producer, let's say, you know, back, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, 
you would have set aside like two, three months of time to do pre-production with an artist. But what does that do if you're not getting paid a lot of money? You know, right. if you're looking at an artist who can only pay you like 20, 30, 40,000 bucks to produce your record, if you're devoting three, four months of your time to their project, that means that you're making a fraction of what you made before. And your standard of living has actually gotten harder because of inflation. So right. when you look at a rec when you look at a recording project now, you're gonna figure out, okay, I wanna get that twenty or thirty grand, but how do I amortize it? So, you know, and you know, in terms of like the the time allotment, how do I do this so it makes sense? You figure that you cut the most time consumptive parts out of the process. And the most time consumptive process of all outside of actually physically recording would be pre production. Right. So, you know, you just figure out, all right, you know, they want my name on this record. They don't care what I do. So I'm just going to go in, cut the record with them, get as much of the budget as I can and, you know, call it a day, which is great if you're a producer. I would say in a lot of respects, you're actually making more money now than you were like 15 years ago in that sense, because you could be making 20, 30 grand every like two, three weeks. It's not a bad payday. No. You yeah. know, but it's not making better records because you're not spending the time that really is necessary to make a record on constructing it, you right. know? So that's where the drawback is. I, okay. I, I couldn't agree more. And I also think too, you know, tell me how you feel about this, but you can't do pre-production because your pay goes down, but also the band isn't getting the advance that they would get. So they can't afford to take the time off to do it either. Really? Well, well they would, they would if, it was being presented to them in a way where they could do it. See, the way I'm doing it right now is I'm making sure that I'm doing pre-production as something that can be adjunct to a recording. That can actually be done. That doesn't need to be done in a tight schedule. Let's say, yeah. you know, where the producer does pre-production, then he goes into the recording. I mean, if you're in that position, of course, as a producer, you're definitely cutting into your income. There's no question about it. But let's say you're working with an artist. And the artist is aware that he doesn't have to rush into a recording studio right after he's done with his pre-production. What's he going to do? He's going to take his time. If he's got a job, he's going he's to you know, work and he's going to do the pre-production when he's able to do it, when he's able to really spend the time on it. You know, it yeah. makes the whole process easier. It's going to take a little longer, but at the end of it, he's still going to wind up with the same, if not better, results. He's got a record that's essentially as close to a turnkey operation as you can get, and you can go straight into a recording studio and cut it. Gotcha. Nice. Are you finding that, that you're a lot of the, like, like a lot of the stuff you produce. So maybe you're in the studio and you're, you're, you're saying like, okay, we got to get through this record. And as you're making changes, those become the final kind of take. So almost like the demo is the new recording. Um, once a demo that's been cut um, at the end of pre-production or, or no, no. So like, let's say that like, cause you were just talking about it and you're saying, okay, I have to do this in three weeks and we don't have the time to kind of go and do two or three months of pre-production. So as, as you go through that process, um, are you finding that you're kind of doing both at the same time? Um, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm will not and do not make records that way. You know, I don't go into the, I, I'm not the guy who's going to take like 20 or 30 grand and cut a record in two weeks. <laughs> my brain, for one thing, my brain doesn't work that way. 
Like I can't, I can't actually sit down in a recording studio and knock something out that fast. You know, I think there are people who are incredibly skilled at that sort of thing and they figured out how to, how to formalize it. And that's great. You know, I can't do it. It's just, I'm just not capable of it. And I've had to accept it. You know, it doesn't make it any easier for me in terms of working, but it means that I basically devote myself to the things that I'm best at. I'm better at helping people organize their records. Um, I'm better at make at doing at working on projects that have very you know long that that are, that are sort of long in terms of schedule and don't have an, don't have much in terms of limitations. I mean, there aren't that many projects out there like that, you know. So I'm really devoting myself almost exclusively at this point to doing pre-production, partly because I think it's necessary. I think it's something that people need, you know, vitally. If they don't get it. Well, you know, the, I think the result is kind of speaking for itself right now, like the quality of the recordings that people are making. I couldn't agree more with you. It's amazing. Yeah, so I don't, um, so I, I, I don't like to, I, I think rushing is not good for most people. You know, I, I know that there's been a lot said about like, well, you know, the fact that we, that we don't have a lot of money to work with means that people have to work faster, which is good for them. And it's like, it might be good for some people. It's not good for everybody. You know, let's keep in mind also that not every artist is Muddy Waters who could, like, write a song, walk into a room and record it, and it would become iconic. Yeah. It's a whole different level of artistry, and we don't see people like that anymore. So so to be able to compare that to now is absolutely absurd. It's It's completely unrealistic and delusional. You know, the artists today need more help than they've ever needed, I would say, in recording history. You know, and most artists are really aware of the fact that they have an endless amount of tracks to work with, and they'll just keep noodling and noodling and noodling without coming up with anything that's substantial or useful. You know, they need to be directed. They need to understand discipline. They need to understand what they're actually in there doing, like what their expression is about, instead of the function of making a record, which is essentially a waste of time, because like, how many other people are there in the world who are doing this right now? You know, who have like a Pro Tools rig, you know, or a garage band on their computer and like, right. oh, I've got that. I can make a record. It's like, <laughs> no, you think you can, but you really can't. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, that's all I've got, Michael. I don't know if you got anything else, Chris. Um, no, I just, you know, I'm just a huge fan and I just I appreciate you taking the time with us today. Absolutely. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Huge fan as well here. I'm, I'm, we just... We talk about all those Manson records, but even the Aussie records, Osmosis, is one of my favorites still to this oh, day. Oh, so. me, for me, it's super unknown. I mean, that record changed my life. Yeah. Oh, awesome! What did, what was what was your role on Super Unknown? Uh well, <laughs> producer. <laughs> um, well, I think, as I indicated earlier, um, that without that without pre-production, that record would not be what it what it is um i i i would say that without without my involvement on that record a lot of the songs that are that are on that record a lot of i'd say most of the best ones wouldn't even exist that's a very that's a very uh big <laughs> statement to make but yeah you know i i i they gave me a demo tape to listen to when I uh, started working with them and it contained a third of the record, the rest of it was a waste. And I had to tell them that we weren't ready to record. And it took two months to 
to go from that point to the point where I was like, okay, we got what we need, um, which is amazing that it took that little time to get there. Yeah. Um, but really, I'd say about 80 to 90, 80% of the best songs on that record were written in that two-month period. Wow. Uh, and if they hadn't... if you know, chances are they could have gone in with someone else who would have been like, oh, that's great. We got a record, you know, because um, Spoonman, for example, was on the first, was on the tape that they gave me. And that was yep. their first single. And a lot of people, I think, would have been satisfied with that. But I was like, this is nowhere near what, what, what we need. Um, and if they'd gone in with just the music on that, on that, it would have been a total letdown. Black Hole Sun wouldn't exist. You know, oh, wow. fell, on, fell on Black Days wouldn't exist. Oh man! Super, super unknown. The song wouldn't exist, wow. you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so that that was my involvement on the record. I really kind of, I, I, I feel that I encouraged, uh, spurred them on, hopefully inspired them a little bit to to come up with that material. Oh man, it that that record. I, I'll never. I was I was in high school when that record came out, and. I mean, I can't imagine the pressure that must have been on on the band and on you after Bad Motorfinger came out. And I mean, that record was pretty epic. Not really. No, no, it was funny. I think a lot of people back then, when a band was successful um, and they were big enough, you could tell who was going to be the next big band. You know. And everyone was looking at Soundgarden after the success of Bad Motorfinger going like, their next record is going to be huge. You could just tell. Yeah. But I think people, for some reason, had this impression, even in the industry, that stuff like that just happened. You know, that it was one of those things where, people, where, where the, the band would just come out with a great record because it was their time. And it, it, it was never like that. It was like, yeah, you can, you can tell that this band's going to get even bigger, but like how it gets there is a whole different, you know, is a whole right. different question. And when I got, when I wound up working with them, that was my mission statement. No one told me you're going to have to do this. I just took it on myself. I, cause I knew people had said, were saying this band's going to be huge. And I was like, yes, I agree. This band's going to be huge. I have to do, I have to do my job now and make sure this happens. You know, so I really kind of, and it, it wasn't pressure. It was kind of like, it's not, it was almost kind of like a fun, like, problem with the solution that was, that was out there for me to find. And it wasn't really a conversation I ever had with the artist. Yeah. It was one of these things where I, where I was like, all right, this is my job. I have to solve this, you know. So the band, I think that they had this idea initially that they were going to go into the studio and cut a record in like two or three weeks and leave because that's how they wanted to do it. They're like, all right, we're big. We know it. We tour with Guns N' Roses. You know, we can do whatever we want. You know, so they had this like crazy idea that it was going to be like peaches and cream. And my feeling was like, oh, no, this is I think. And I think that's why they hired me, too, because they had this impression that I was going to be some like little punk rock guy who was going to make this like, you know, who's going to make a quick ass like, you know, whatever you know, record that would be like low impact. And I was like, Oh no, this is, <laughs> this is not, I, I know. I mean, I never had the conversation with them, but my attitude was like, no, nah, this is definitely a long haul type project. It's like, we have a lot, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot riding on this. So it's got to be as good as it can possibly be. You know, I mean, every sure. sound on that record was like meticulously kind of crafted. <laughs> yeah, nice. it, it shows. I mean, that that record was a game changer for me personally. 
Good, I'm glad. Thank when you. I heard it, from the sonic quality of it to the songwriting, you know, uh, I think, did Brennan mix that record, Brennan O'Brien? Or yeah, did he, he did. The record? Yeah, he mixed it. Yeah, everything, everything on that record is just, to me, it's kind of like a pinnacle of recording on that on that album. So yeah, well, it was meant to be. You know, yeah. it, it was definitely it was designed, it was built that way by design. Like there was a lot of that going into it. And I actually uh, there there was a lot of friction on when we made it because the the artist the the band didn't want that. Like they didn't want that kind of record. You know, uh, and it wasn't like oh I got my way or anything like that. It, it was more like. You know, they complained. They weren't happy about how it was going. They felt that it, that we were wasting time. You know, but every time they came into the studio and heard, you know, heard what it sounded like, they just they just stopped talking. <laughs> just right. Didn't say anything anymore because they were listening to it and they, they realized. I, I don't think they realized what the record was going to do. I mean, it was really funny because um, the product manager from A and M came down at one point and listened to the first four songs we'd cut. And he, you know, he got up at the end of the listening session. He was like, thanks a lot, guys. And he walked out and I was like, what was that? <laughs> thanks a lot. I was like, you know what you're just listening to. And, and when the record was finished, he, I remember he reached out to me and he was like, I, I'm, I apologize. I was so wrong. <laughs> I was so wrong. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was funny. He, he, but he was he was very he was humble about it. Like I had to appreciate his position, um, you know. But it was one of those things. I don't think anyone really understood while we were making it, you know. Even the band to some extent. But when it was done, everyone was just like, "Oh shit!" Right. <laughs> yeah, this is a heavy record. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Well, yeah. awesome, Michael. I appreciate your time. No problem, guys. My look, pleasure. Look forward to more records from you. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Be well. Got anything else, Chris? Uh, no, I just, thanks again. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, gentlemen. Be Have well, sir. Bye. You too. Have a Bye. good one. You too. See ya. Bye. Bye. Shit. That was a great interview. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I feel like we just talked to royalty, which is kind of funny, but. Well, I, did, I always thought Brendan O'Brien had produced Super Unknown. I didn't know that he was the producer. So he's like, I produced it. I was like, I better look this up. Because <laughs> uh, like the record that I had owned, like the CD I bought, mm -hmm. must have been a misprint. It said produced by Brendan O'Brien. Yeah. What a nice guy, too. Oh, yeah. And he's got stories, I'm sure, for a billion years to come. Oh yeah, like when he's talking about the junkie, two junkies. Yeah, I know. I I know there was a way he was kind of like straddling the line not to not to tell anything really bad about him, but I'm sure he's seen some crazy shit. Oh God, I mean, he's worked with a lot of heroin addicts. Yeah, a lot. But some of some of my favorite records are in there. Maybe not super unknown. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. I like it for what it is, but some of the other stuff, like the Black Label Society and the Aussie stuff, I'm like, holy crap. And I know, like, when I'm looking at records, I'm still one of those nerdy geeks. I look it up and go, produced by Michael Beinhorn. Shit, that's going to be a good record. I'm going to grab it. I'm surprised you didn't ask him about those records. I asked him about Osmosis. We were talking about it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. love that record. So, yeah, yeah that was great. I, I enjoyed that conversation a lot. Yeah, no, it blew my mind away. Like, I was like, should I ask him about this two-inch tape thing? And I was like, well, I want to know about it. <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to ask him. It was also one of those ones that started off kind of weird. I didn't. It was kind of awkward in the beginning, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Did you feel that? I was like, uh, I don't know how to get started here. But Nenny, once he started, he can talk. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you're like, thanks for joining us. He's like, yeah. Yeah, I didn't I know like, what to do. Because <laughs> I'm going to tell, tell you a quick story before I have to, uh, before we wrap this up. But I guess I'm not going to say the name of the band, but I did an interview years back with a really big Florida, Tampa-based death metal band. Really, really big. Yeah. Um, and I got the singer on the phone, and I had I had prepped. It was one of my early interviews. I'd never done you know something that big before, and I was like, shit, this is gonna be ready. I got everything, dude. I had I don't know thirty questions. Every question was, uh huh, yeah, uh, no, I don't think so. One word fucking answers, and I didn't even know what to do. I was done in like thirty seconds with all of my questions, and it was all this weird awkward silence. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm gonna do. I can't do anything with this interview. There was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> my editor was like hey where's the interview i go well here it is i'm going to transcribe it for you and my question is like three lines and then no you know <laughs> i didn't even know what to do with that oh that's crazy yeah so i appreciate it. that's what i thought this one was starting off and i'm like oh man this is not uh not going to start off well and then it went really well i mean that was one of the better ones we've done i think super oh, great. it was amazing Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!